Welcome, everybody, to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast, where we talk about different orthopedic topics and try to get you well-versed in that topic. So if you are a physician and it comes in your clinic, you know how to manage it, or if you see a test question on it, you know how to answer it. And I am, you know, the favorite co-host here. I'm, I'm <laughs> Dr. Cole, and I'm accompanied here by my little guy, my, my sidekick. Oh man, he's uh man, he's see that's why I don't let him start too many shows because he just get too too out of hand. But uh, hey guys, this is Jay, your favorite. I'm back, and uh, we have a a pretty good uh, good lecture and, and talk today, or a good podcast episode. But a little bit before that, I know we have some other things coming up soon. I know we got some orthopedic in training exams coming up in a month or two. Actually, maybe. Probably in about a week by the time this episode airs, but we got OITs coming up soon. Dr. Fitz, what you doing for it? How you studying? They all want to know what are the secrets? Teach them the ways. Teach them the ways, man. I'm, you know, I'm still trying to find them out myself, to be honest. But I yeah. think all these tests is really not even just OITE. It's like, you know, OITE step one. You know, all these big major tests that you do is really about trying to get do some questions, man. You just got to find you a good question bank and and really get through it uh, as many as you can. I think the more questions you do, the more often you do it, the better you end up doing overall. I think like right now on the OITE front, I am we're still about mm, a little bit less than two months out, which I'm probably not as exactly where I want to be, but I'm not too far off either. I'm kind of going over some of the information with different review um review uh, slides and things like that I have. But at some point, I'm going to transition into heavy, just questions, questions, questions to see how many I can get through and hopefully can get through over, you know, 1,500, 2,000, 3,000, whatever. Just keep going until I can't no more. And, you know, usually if you put in the time, the the, the effort shows with your grades. And that's kind of how I worked with step one. So I expect the same thing with these types of in-training exams. What about you? Yeah, for me, it's... um. I always like to start early, man. I, I'm I consider myself the lazier, the lazy studier, meaning that I'd rather, you know, study over the course of five or six months and study a little bit every day than just cram for a week or two. You know, that way you kind of get a little bit more retention. So that that's just the way I think about it. So I kind of, to me, it's kind of year round. You know, I'm kind of studying year round, trying to figure things out and and learn. So and then questions, just like you said, just doing as many questions as you can possibly do. I actually don't think that's a bad idea. Um, like the, I feel like I don't know. I, I'm not 100 percent sure, but I feel like this test may be weighted, and yeah. you know, basic science is going to be something where a lot of people do bad on. And if you can almost do 95, you know, if you can do over 90 percent in it, oh, on those topics, I mean, that should jump your score up a lot. And the good thing about it is, it, it's it's not there you don't really have to understand the concepts it's really just rote memorization at times so if you can just get it if you've seen it if you've done a question on it you saw it you should probably get the question right they, they don't really try to throw crazy curveballs when it comes to this stuff you know when they talk about young's modulus or uh, you know these different types of viscoelastic materials and things like that they just asking straight it's a straightforward question like either you know mm. it or you don't you don't have to waste Boy, time. sounds smart right now yeah because i'm Studying, you know, I you like ask it. me, you ask me after the test, man, all that stuff goes right out the window, but don't tell nobody <laughs> that part. But anyway, man, we, uh, we're going to jump into the, the talk for the day. Let's do it. Um, this one here, we have a great guest who came on. He actually someone who's worked with one of my attendings. And I haven't even told him about it yet. I guess I probably should. But it's and uh, he did grand rounds at, at, at mine, too. He did grand rounds um, at our program as well. 
Look at this. He's uh, he he really makes it happen. This is Dr. Dowd. Uh, Dr. Dowd. He did his fellowship in foot and ankle at the Harvard uh, at Harvard. Excuse me. Everybody knows what that is. Uh, and his residency, he did residency at San Antonio Uniform Services Health Education Consortium. And he's now a uh, specialist in foot and ankle. Uh, and he came in and to do a talk on calcaneus fractures, and he really broke it down really well for us and made it really easy to understand, even without having, you know, some slides or x-rays right in front of you. I think just the way he kind of talks through these different uh, different, different parts of calcaneus fractures really makes it easy for you to kind of get a grasp of it. So let's just jump right into it. Y'all going to enjoy the show. I did. I'm going to probably listen to it again and uh, probably again after that. And you guys just Take it in and enjoy. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Dr. Dowd, welcome to the podcast. I'm, I'm glad we finally got a chance to connect. And um, again, welcome to the podcast. We're glad to have you on. I'm so pleased to be with you guys. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, I knew once we, you know, you're actually, it's funny, you're actually uh, one of our um, our invited speakers for our my residencies program. And I really enjoyed our talk and, and working with you. And, uh, you know, I thought it'd be a great idea to have you come on again. So, again, that was an excellent talk. And I'm sure this is going to be an excellent episode as well. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Right on. <laughs> yeah, Dr. Dow, by the way, he, uh, Wendell, he told me about uh, that you were a speaker at his at his program and the whole time he's t he was telling me how nervous he was that you might ask him a question. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm glad, I'm glad that you, you didn't uh, put him through the ringer too much. So, so that we can get you on our well, show. <laughs> tables have turned, right? <laughs> I guess a little bit, I guess a little bit. So we, we tend to start off with just asking a few questions um, about you. Uh, so that our listeners can kind of get to know uh, our our guest, uh, we're going to start off with uh, what made you want to go the military route for orthopedics, and is there uh, a big difference between military orthopedics versus civilian ortho? Sure. So uh, probably as a as a mandatory thing, disclaimer: no no one in the government really cares about my opinion, but I, I'm certainly not offering it uh, as as a speaker for the government. Um, but I think it's worthwhile to, to tell the story. Now, for me, I'm the seventh of nine kids. And my dad had a rule. If you're going to go to college, you better uh, get it paid for somehow. And maybe he'll throw in a car if you go there for free. So all of us who went off to college had to find a way to get a, a free ride. Uh, for me, I followed in my brother's footsteps at West Point, and uh, I like the swim team there better than the Naval Academies, even though they're far better than us, unfortunately. Uh, but I, I, I enjoyed my recruiting trip at West Point, and I said, hey, I, I'll go there, um, and, and if they let me go to medical school, they let about 2% of the class per year go to medical school. I said, I'd be happy to do that, and, and if I was in officer in the army, it would be a pretty decent backup plan. And and I was fortunate enough to be chosen um, to go to medical school. And I, I went to medical school at the Uniformed Services University in Bethesda, right on the campus of Walter Reed. And during medical school, I remember vividly sitting in the biochemistry class as 9-11 occurred. Uh, 
And uh, that was a pretty significant event uh, to, to make an understatement. And uh, so as my years in medical school progressed, the clinical years, I was a third year down here in San Antonio and I was on the general surgery service. And I distinctly remember AJ Johnson's team rounding and I didn't know who they were, but it was, you know, dark hours of the morning. And I said, who is that happy team over there that seems to be enjoying themselves? And the general surgeon said, Oh, that's orthopedic. You don't want anything to do with them. I, <laughs> I said to myself, <laughs> I don't know. I, that looks like the, exactly the team I want to be. Yeah, part they look pretty happy so, over there. You got it. So that I, the rest was history in that regard. I, I went to my dean. I said, tell me more about orthopedics and how you'll recommend me for it. And I was fortunate enough to match down here. And uh, here I am in military orthopedics. The, the second part of your question is uh, now having become the program director at uh, my residency program, I have a unique perspective as to how military orthopedics is different than civilian. Now, I'll tell you from the medicine standpoint, the actual practice, it, it's not significantly different. Um, the same standards apply. The residency is still accredited by ACGME, and we follow the guidelines that the ABOS sets forth uh, in order to sit for board certification. I would say the difference is primarily the patients. And, and I've had the amazing fortune of, of treating some amazing folks um, who you sit and listen to their stories. And that's probably a story for a different time, but it, it will it will humble you and inspire you. And I, I'd say that's the biggest difference, um, both that and being sent to faraway lands to practice medicine. So. Uh, the patients, the deployments, and then the fact that I have to prepare folks potentially to be general orthopedic surgeons. Uh, our transition to fellowship right after training is far less frequent than you might otherwise observe in the civilian sector. Yeah, wow, that's um, that's a lot to you know consider, and um, yeah, that's a pretty good story. I like that. I, I didn't really think about. Well, I guess we don't get too much exposure to the, to the military side of things, but um, I, I think that's, that's good insight. Um, a little bit of insight into, into that life. Um, and another question that we have for you um, for those that may be residents right now that are listening, that are trying to decide what specialty they want to go into, what decisions did you think of or factors that you think of that made you choose the specialty that you ended up uh, eventually going into? Sure. I, you know, um, my greatest bit of advice that I received during residency was to pick the complications you're most interested in dealing with. Because fellowship training really isn't to be better at the bread and butter in that area of concentration. It is to be able to manage the entire breadth of pathology to which you're exposed in that subspecialty. And, and that was given to me by Jay Crawford. He's a uh, peds orthopedic surgeon up in Knoxville. And, and I think it really rang true. And so I said to myself, can I treat diabetic feet? You know, what's the worst thing that everyone thinks about when they think about or, uh, orthopedic foot and ankle surgery? Can, yeah. can you treat diabetic feet 
and are you humble enough that you're okay to be confused with a podiatrist? And I, I thought, <laughs> yeah, I, I can do both of them. Um, but for me, I, I was sitting in Jim Fickey's office, and he's a mentor of mine. Um, during the Iraq surge, and there were a lot of mounted uh, improvised explosive device injuries coming back to San Antonio. And, and I really wanted to do better for these patients. And that inspired me to pursue foot and ankle. Okay. And that's funny you say that because some of the things you said about uh, can you deal with uh, someone calling you a podiatrist and dealing with those diabetic feet, that's that's exactly what pushed me away from foot and ankle. <laughs> oh, man. That's hilarious. I mean, that's exactly what it was. We have an excellent – uh, staff for foot and ankle. I mean, it, each and every person almost who goes through our program, if, after you rotate with some of our staff, you end up loving foot and ankle. But for me, it was it was one thing. I didn't like a lot of people putting their feet on my uh, pants. And that, that tend to happen when you sit down, they kind of put their foot in your lap. And uh, just the, the whole podiatry thing, I'm like, man, I, I don't like that at all. So Funny, that's funny. But uh, <laughs> we're we're gonna we're gonna get going on the actual case. Uh, so everyone listening know now that we're talking about calcaneus fractures. Uh, here's the the, the storyline that we're gonna go with. Say we have a 35 year old construction worker who fell uh, 15, uh, 12 feet from off of a ledge while he was at work and landed directly onto his feet. He comes into the emergency department now with uh, increased swelling and pain to his feet. Uh, if you're at the hospital and you're in the emergency department, kind of where do you start with the history and physical for this patient? Well, I think you hit some high points right off the bat. What's his occupation? And um, the mechanism of injury goes hand in hand with that occupation and really has some impact on the eventual outcome, as we know from Buckley's study and, and other work along those lines. But that's where I would start, and that's really where I start with any patient, uh, provided that there are not associated injuries that are more urgent. So these axial load injuries, whether from a motor vehicle collision or a fall from height, can result in associated injuries such as lumbar spine fractures uh, or other uh, periarticular lower extremity fractures. So I, I would make sure they're stable enough to have a discussion regarding that. But then I would really delve into, hey, what, what do you want to do with this foot? And, and that may be a discussion that's better conducted when the patient is doing a little bit better than writhing in pain from the initial injury. But that should be your focus is what does this foot need to do for the patient? What are their goals and aspirations for returning to work, for recreation? Uh, and, and see if you can marry your treatment ability, your skills, your knowledge, and the hospital's ability to facilitate that and marry those to the patient's needs, their goals, their desires, and put that focus on them. Absolutely. And so since you're at an institution that has uh, residents and things like that, when at what point are you having this conversation with the patient or do you tell you do you train your residents to talk about this as well and uh while they're in the emergency department is this a discussion you're having after surgery before surgery in the office kind of how does that work well I, these are normally definitively treated in a delayed fashion i think you reasonably have up to three weeks to address them definitively 
And so that discussion is often had by me. So if I'm saying, hey, what do I expect of a resident who's evaluating this patient in the emergency department? I expect them to assess for associated injuries. I expect for them to assess for any soft tissue injuries that accompany the bone injury. We get so fixated on the radiographs that sometimes we can miss the fact that there are fracture blisters that there is the potential for foot compartment syndrome, that there may be an open tension injury on the medial side, or, or that you can even have such an impact on your heel that the fracture comes out that, albeit rarely. Um, but, but those associated soft tissue injuries can't be neglected. And so I, I invite them to assess the soft tissue for compromise um, in the early phase. So I've looked at associated injuries, I've looked for soft tissue compromise, and then we need to stabilize both for soft tissue rest and to minimize pain for the patient. And so uh, often a bulky cotton uh, splint is used or a well-reinforced uh, LNU splint that uh, minimizes the risk of burn injury at those places of uh, risk, such as the proximal leg or the heel. And so a well-padded splint, elevation, and then proper imaging. Right. I think those are the keys for the initial assessment. Yeah, and I think that's excellent. Just to reiterate what you were just talking about is assessing the soft tissue envelope, you know, making sure there's no, you know, skin blisters or any necrosis of the skin or blanching, which can be seen in, you know, like tongue type. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. If there's any open fractures and really assessing that soft tissue envelope. Now, I know we spoke a little bit about or touched a little bit about our associated injuries. And we know the big ones that we always hear, you know, lumbar spine fractures just due to the mechanism of the injury. How should we be getting, you know, L-spine films with, you know, with all these calc fractures, you know, or is that something that, you know, you'll kind of just do based on the mechanism of the injury? And if they have like tenderness and palpation. Right. I I, I won't do it reflexively, uh, but I think there needs to be a high index of suspicion. And if there's any sense of discomfort in the lumbar spine, any tenderness in that region, they're obligatory. You should you should obtain them. Perfect. And um, so I know you kind of spoke a little bit about imaging, but um, I think I think we actually move move on to imaging now. We kind of just went over some things to be on the lookout for history, and then. Uh, some things to be on the lookout for when you're seeing these patients and assessing them and paying a close uh, close attention to the soft tissue envelope. So when we look at imaging, what kind of imaging are we getting and what are we looking for on these different x-rays? Sure thing. I, to start off with just the three high yield images I like to reinforce with my residents. We've got the lateral view, the Burden's view, and then the Harris heel view or the Harris axial view. And, and I like to repetitively highlight the things you need to look at on each. So the lateral view will show us what the height of the calcaneus is. The Harris heel view will show us primarily whether or not there's varus angulation and secondarily whether or not there's lateral wall blowout. And then the Broden's view, which can be obtained just by changing the angle from the head to the foot uh, of the beam during a mortise view, 
that will be used to look at the articular surface of the posterior facet. And, and so those are the three main things. I want to look at the height, the varus, and the characteristics of comminution or depression at the posterior facet. And so those are the three images. And if you'd like, we can talk about how to obtain them or, or some nuances there. But those are yeah. the three keys. I think that's perfect. We can talk about how to obtain them. And then, you know, on those laterals, like specifically what you're looking at to assess the height. I know there's different angles and which ones you use, you know, and kind of implications of those. Sure. Uh, there are two main angles. We've got the bowler's angle and then the angle of Jusson. And I, funny, I used to pronounce that Gassane, and I'm pretty sure as I reflected <laughs> on the, his history, I, I was pronouncing it entirely wrong. I still may be. Yeah, but, me but too. But there's some nuances there. Go ahead. No, I was saying me too. Yeah, same here. Oh, here. You, right. just, you just taught me something there, so I appreciate it. <laughs> I, it may it may be uh, bad information, so be, be careful. But it, it seems to make sense. Um, I, so that bowler's angle, it is a it's an angle created from the highest point of the anterior process of the calcaneus to the posterior facet, and then that line is compared with the line that travels along the posterior tuberosity most superiorly. That, that angle is normally 20 to 40 degrees, um, and it can be diminished a couple different ways. I, I like to talk about the calcaneus when you're looking at it in the lateral view as though the Achilles insertion is your base camp, and the big mountain that you go up from posterior to anterior heads towards the tip of the posterior facet. Then you go downhill along the posterior facet, into this valley, which is right around where the sinus tarsi is underneath the lateral process of the talus. Then there's a second smaller mountain you go up, which is headed to the anterior process of the calcaneus. And so you can imagine base camp to big mountain, to little mountain is bowler's angle. If the big mountain gets crushed, bowler's angle decreases. However, in an avulsion fracture or a tongue type fracture, the base camp can also be pushed up. And so bowlers can be changed without there really being an understanding of, hey, what, what's the actual injury? And so that takes us to that critical angle of Jusson. And, and that will really give you a clue in discriminating between that joint depression fracture or the tongue type that Essex Lepresti helped us to delineate in his British Journal of Surgery uh, transcription of his Hunterian lecture uh, from 1952. And, and that distinction is essential. You must be able to say, hey, is, is this a joint depression where that posterior facet fragment is pushed down into that soft, spongy cancellous bone, or is it attached to the <laughs> is it attached to the tuberosity? and one entire confluent piece. And the way you do that is you look and see if the two strong cortical struts that you can see on the lateral view, the one cortical strut underneath the posterior facet as compared to the cortical strut heading from that most inferior part of the valley up to the anterior process of the talus. See if those struts have a widened angle. So if you see that bowlers has, has decreased, if you see that bowlers has decreased and the critical angle of Jusson has increased, then you can say to yourself, okay, this is likely to be 
a joint depression fracture because that joint fragment has been pushed down, allowing that cortical strut under the posterior facet to flatten um, and increase that critical angle of Jassan. I really like the... Does that help? Yeah, I think so. I really like the, the base camp analogy that you used. It's uh, really helpful. And I think there's a lot that comes from just looking at these on the on imaging that can can really... Even as a young resident or, uh, you know, a medical student, it can really just make things, makes a whole lot more sense when it comes to the treatment and kind of these angles because you hear about them a lot or you read about them a lot. So I think you did an excellent job at kind of breaking that down for sure. Well, thanks. Now, I also saw that you or heard that you mentioned about the, the Broden's view. Is that something that you, you got- do that you do intra-op or is that something you do before? It's more important, I would say, intra-op because you're really assessing the adequacy of your reduction. But prior to having CT scans readily available, I would say it would be essential preoperatively. While I think it's important, I, I, won't, uh, I won't say that it's absolutely mandatory because so often we'll get a Broden's view preoperatively and you'll say to yourself, well, goodness, what am I looking at? One essential thing that you're looking at is you want to see on that Broden's view is if the lateral aspect of the posterior facet fragment on the calcaneus has been impacted and sent proximally such that it is impinging on the fibula. That's a critical piece of information. If the calcaneus is impinging on the fibula, it is likely and almost indisputably an operative uh, case unless there's a contraindication to surgery. And, and you can look at the exclusion criteria in the uh, prospective randomized controlled trial in 2014 British Medical Journal that said, hey, everyone should be treated non-operatively. Well, their exclusion criteria said, hey, if your calcaneus is impacting the fibula, well, then you better get surgery. And, and so that's an important finding on the preoperative Broden's, if nothing else. Um, but I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't dismiss it out of hand, I guess I'd say. Is that something you do acutely or you're just saying, uh, like, is this something like, Hey, we need to not discharge this from the ED. We need to admit it and take care of this, uh, acutely. Oh. Or you're saying within a couple of weeks when the soft tissues, uh, uh, when the soft tissues allow, that'd be something that we take care of. Great question. It, it doesn't translate into this being an operatively, emergent or urgent case. It, it simply says, this is something we should treat with surgery unless there's a distinct contraindication to operative intervention. Okay. And what about, how often are you getting CT uh, imaging for these, for these site fractures? Every single time. Every single time. It, I think... Sanders showed that well in his 1993 core article with those 120 patients. He said, you know what, the, the classification that I'm giving you folks based on CT scans is essential to prognosis, it is essential to preoperative planning, and it's mandatory in my mind. Okay, and actually I think that's probably a good transition. Can we talk about some of the classification uh, classifications out there for calcaneus fractures? Sure. I, you know, we, we go back 
to any number of folks uh, in history, you know, you've got your son, you've got Bowler, uh, Palmer, Essex Lepresti. I would, I would say Essex Lepresti built on the work of Bowler in terms of classification in a real memorable way because it produced the later uh, evolution into Sanders. And, and not to give short shrift to the myriad other folks who have contributed, but I, I would highlight these. And Essex Lepresti said, hey, do these fractures involve the subtalar joint? And if they do, that's what he focused on in terms of tongue type or joint depression. So if they involve the subtalar joint, they're going to be either tongue type, and the tongue type again is where the tuberosity fragment is confluent and it's still attached to the major posterior fragment. Some people would call that a Sanders 2C uh, based on how commonly it extends over, but I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> Um, the alternative there is a joint depression type, and that often depends on whether or not there is a more posteriorly directed axial load, which leads to that joint depression, or if it's purely inferior, which commonly would lead to the tongue type. Now, if they don't involve the subtalar joint, they may be uh, the more common avulsion fracture, uh, which is a surgical urgency or emergency where you must take that fragment where the Achilles inserts and has a bolstered off and remove the pressure on the posterior skin. And so that's an example of an extra articular fracture that Essex Lepresti discussed. Less commonly, there are anterior process fractures that extend into the calcaneal cuboid joint in an isolated fashion, or the very rare isolated sustin faculum tali fracture. Uh, but that didn't commonly occur. Oh, on the um, I'm trying to think of some questions or something that may be high yield. With the sustentaculum tali fractures, do you is there any uh, tendons that are sometimes mentioned in questions that could be possibly high yield? Since we're since we're mentioning it, absolutely. The high yield thing here is if you look on an axial view. Uh, or even the Harris heel view, you'll see that medial prominence, the sustentaculum tali, and underneath it, directly plantar to it, will reside the flexor hallucis longus tendon. The FHL is right below there. And so that's great bone medially. And if you're orienting your screw into that bone and you get it, hey, great job. If you're too plantar and you get in the FHL, you may have a fixed, a, a fixed plantar flex, great toe, postoperatively, and that's the clue that, hey, that screw is inferiorly directed and has tethered the flexor hallucis longus. So that relationship is essential. Great question. Perfect. And um, another, another question I had, this is, I guess, more for the Sanders classification. Uh, we spoke about the Essexopresti, and, you know, we talked about the uh, joint depression versus tongue type, as well as the extra-articular um, fracture of that posterior calcaneus. But for the Sanders, uh, could you kind of just go a little bit into kind of what the Sanders classification is and kind of what it's based on? Sure. So in the methods section of, of his article that I referenced earlier, that 1993 core article, he talks about using coronal and axial views to find the widest part of the talus. And that widest part of the talus, he divides into three main blocks in order to guide your identification of the corresponding blocks of the calcaneus. 
But he basically said there are going to be four parts of the calcaneus at the posterior facet that can be damaged. And as you get more parts, as defined by two millimeters or greater of displacement, as you get more parts, it's a more severe injury. And so if there's not more than two millimeters displacement of any set of those fragments, as you assess the posterior facet on axial and coronal views, primarily coronal by habit is what we use. But if, if there's no more than two millimeters displacement, then it's oh, Sanders one. Now, if there are two main fragments with that much displacement, Sanders two, and so on and so forth until the Sanders four. He also gives a subclassification based on the alphabet. And the way I remember it is Dr. Sanders liked to do the lateral extensile approach. In fact, he popularized it to a great degree based on his results in this article. If you're approaching it from the lateral approach, an A-type fracture earlier in the alphabet is going to be so much easier to address than a C-type fracture because the C is going to be far medial. So from lateral to medial, you go A, B, C. And the way I remember it is it's just more difficult to go further on in the alphabet. It's more difficult to head medially to address fracture fragments from a lateral approach. I'm loving the way you're breaking this stuff down. Uh, yeah. uh, I, I actually remember the very first time I, I tried to kind of learn about this Sanders classification. I was actually a med student. I was going to try to present it to what ended up being the the place where I matched that, but I was trying to present it like on a grand round talk. And I just remember it being kind of complicated, but it's really not. And I think just how you just kind of simplified it, if you can remember that part, that probably makes it uh, a whole lot easier to understand. And they have some great uh, diagrams to kind of break it down to you so you can understand it even better. So I, I do appreciate that you, you, you kind of gave us a, yet another gem yeah. uh, that we can remember. That was great. I definitely love that base camp one from earlier. And yeah, I'm loving all these jumps. I already remember what you're saying. So I, I'm loving it. And that says a lot for, for Wendell. I want you, I want you to know that it says a lot. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it says a lot. But okay, so I think we, we've done a good job. We, we got a history and physical. Uh, we've talked about imaging. We've talked about classification. Uh, now let's get into the treatment of these type fractures as well. And first, I would like to start off with non-operative management. What would be some of the indications for non-op management and how are you going about, I guess, what is your usual course for non-operative management as well? So non-operative management in my practice, and, and this is by no means definitive practice, but if you're, you have a non-displaced calcaneus fracture, you're getting non-operative treatment. I think that's widely accepted. If you have an intra-articular joint depression fracture, if you have a Sanders two or three, I'm going to treat you with an open reduction internal fixation. So I'm, I'm typically not going to treat that non-operatively. Although this is where we hearken back to my discussion about getting an understanding for the patient's hopes, their desires, their needs for this foot. If my patient is not particularly active and they are not looking to do higher impact activity at all. And I've discussed with them the risks, the benefits and alternatives of the surgery. And they say, look, I, I, I hear what you're saying, but you also told me that the outcome may be the same with the Sanders two, Sanders three between surgery or not. 
and I, I've described to them and translated to them some factors that are going to be important for them understanding whether or not to go ahead with surgery. And they say, look, I don't want surgery. By all means, I'll progress with that. Um, but if there's Bowler's angle is less than zero, I, I worry that not restoring the architecture will hurt them in two ways. One, they don't really have much hope for that inversion, eversion at the subtalar joint to be beneficial to them. In fact, I, I expect it to be fairly painful. Second, with a, with a flat bowler's angle or loss of calcaneus height, let's go back to that highest mountain heading down to the valley. That posterior facet is described by that. That posterior facet is pushing up on the talus posteriorly. And it is saying to that talus, you must have a tailor inclination. You must appear plantar flexed on a lateral radiograph to a certain degree. And when you don't have that strong posterior facet part, pushing that posterior part of the talus up and into an inclined position, imagine that talus just flattening out. And so not only will their subtalar joint not really work, but they'll develop anterior ankle impingement from the loss of that height. And so as their height diminishes further and further, I'm thinking to myself, I should restore this architecture, not only for the function of the native joint, if it comes back, but also because um, Sanders showed, we're back to Sanders again, but he showed that subtalar atrodesis after a properly reconstituted architecture does better than doing an arthrodesis of a malunited fracture that it needs, say, for example, bone block distraction arthrodesis. Other examples of why I might do non-operative treatment, bad peripheral vascular disease, diabetes, cigarette use. And, th and this is really host problems, right? If I have a poor surgical host with variables that I can't directly change, then I won't intervene surgically. And so that leads me to the discussion of host factor based on behavioral things. Let's say they use tobacco. I, I'm a bit of a cynic. I, I, I often will joke with my patients that I don't care if they die of lung cancer, when indeed I do. But <laughs> I, in a selfish yeah. way, all I care about is whether or not there's blood supply for fracture healing and for wound healing. It's, it's paramount. And so I, I'll open my hand and, and show them a hole in my hand and I'll say, the effect of nicotine takes blood vessels and I'll squeeze into a fist and I'll say it eliminates blood supply to the bone that needs to heal and to the wound that must heal if I'm creating it. Now, to be fair, if you get two parts of a calcaneus in a room, they'll often heal together. So it's really the wound that I'm worried about, especially because I'm directly responsible for it. Right. Fortunately, I have, I have some time, and so if I can convince the patient and be reassured that they will diminish their nicotine use, I will consider them for moderate treatment and for the more severe injuries that would likely benefit from surgery regardless of uh, my preference. Uh, I'll often accept the surgical risk if they continue to smoke, if they so insist. And when you're treating them, are you... Are you treating them in a short like cast if you're choosing non-operative or are you doing a bulky Jones and just tell them not to walk on it or putting them in a splint? What are, what are you doing? So I, I can't tell you the last time I put on a bulky cotton or a Jones splint. Um, but this is a shout out to my 
my mentor, uh, one of my mentors up in Boston, Eric Blumen, taught me how to put on a splint that I use for just about everything from the knee down in terms of ankle and hind foot. And so what, what I'll do is I'll take a six inch web reel and I'll make it eight layers thick, the length of the L shape of the L and U splint. And then I will wrap around that circumferentially six times so that it's padded pretty extensively from the calf all the way down to the foot. I'll make sure I haven't overconstricted it on the base of the fifth metatarsal and the first metatarsal. And then I will take five inch rolls and I will make it seven thick posteriorly. And then I'll create the U, not by struggling with a big long U that I reach medially and laterally, but I'll have two J's that are about the same length as the L. And I'll put one J from the medial malleolus up laterally after going around the heel. And I'll put the other J from the lateral malleolus, wrap it around plantarly and up to the medial leg. Then I'll overwrap that with a layer of web rill just to prevent it from being too dusty when I pull it off. And then I will uh, apply an ACE bandage or bias wrap uh, over the top of that. Now, now here's the reason why you might not want to get into foot and ankle surgery again, is he insisted that I put the toes into my neck so that I use the flat part of my sternum. I use the flat part of my sternum to make sure that the plantar surface of that splint was straight. And I use that to affect dorsiflexion at least neutral in these patients. Now, your patients aren't going to tolerate that right off the bat. So I, I would get them in a good position to rest with that initial splint and have them come back within a week or two to inspect the soft tissue, have a more nuanced discussion in clinic about operative versus non-operative treatment, and proceed from there. But I, I think that that splint has been a real mainstay of my practice and, and gives you reproducible results that protect your patient. Jay, next time, uh, next time you're on call, you should use that technique. <laughs> yeah, that was toes, uh, right? <laughs> that was pretty. That was a pretty pretty fancy splint, and the whole toes near the near the near the the mouth thing. That's just too close for me. I I can't deal. But at the at the end of the day, uh, I think like what you were getting at is is you really wanted to be well padded. Uh, you know, it helps with the the, the swelling for sure. Uh, and just to actually go back a little bit because I, I mean I think you're dropping some great points that can be overlooked but I mean you see them on questions sometimes so we already mentioned about the sustentaculum fractures you have to watch out for the FHL tendon you just mentioned about uh, when you have flattening of the 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 calcaneal height you can end up with uh, ankle impingement that's something else to look out for and something that can go right over your head but I think you did a great job of explaining about that and also, if you have widening of the uh, calcaneus, you mentioned about uh, impingement against the fibula, or and that can also include the perineal tendons and perineal tendonitis and things like that. So those are like some of these second secondhand uh, questions that come about. If but you have to understand the pathology to get to to the answer. But I really appreciate you going through some of this stuff. Um, and you bring. If, if I can interrupt for a sec, you bring up a great point in a, a topic I may have given short shrift to, which is that Harris heel view initially. And I, I had a resident recently say, well, why does it go into varus? And, and I, I said, well, gosh, I better answer that right for you. And, and the reason is 
there's a primary fracture line that when viewed on the axial view, it goes from the lateral aspect of the calcaneus to the medial aspect of the calcaneus as you go uh, from cephalad to caudad or from the subtalar joint towards the heel as it touches the ground. And that's important because as the Achilles shortens that tuberosity fragment and, and pulls it upwards, that angle of the primary fracture line is essentially a ramp. And so the intact medial cortex of that tuberosity fragment conforms to that angled fracture and induces the varus. Mm. And, and I think that's a nice way to remember it so that you can say, okay, the primary fracture line causes this, and that'll help me remember the orientation of it down the road when I'm treating it operatively. And, I, and that, that's another great gem, just another easy way to kind of remember some of this high yield information. Uh, and, and that actually leads us to the next point. What, what are some of the operative, well, I guess you, you kind of talked about some of the operative indications by saying some of the non-op indications, kind of opposite of that. But uh, what are some of the other indications that we might not have mentioned? And also kind of what, what approaches and techniques do you usually use when fixing these types of fractures? Sure. Well, um, let, let's do it in a stepwise fashion. What, uh, what has to go immediately? What, what type of calcaneus fracture am I going to go, whoa, guys, we got to get the OR mobilized. We, we have to get this patient to the OR. Yeah. That's yeah. going to be an avulsion fracture on a patient where the fragment has migrated proximally and is putting that posterior skin at risk. So anytime you see an avulsion fracture, and that, that is a fracture of the tuberosity that does not extend into the posterior facet, which would be a tongue type, but an avulsion fracture that has migrated that uh, Achilles insertion to such an extent that it puts the posterior skin at risk. And so my default would be we must take that to the OR expeditiously and get it reduced and in my hand definitively treated, but at least reduced and then provisionally held with K-wires uh, such that that skin does not die. And, and so avulsion fracture equals urgent surgical intervention. And so you must prioritize that. Now, Tongue type fracture may also require that too if it's displaced enough such that the skin may be at risk. And so consider that as well for urgent intervention uh, to where you uh, get the tuberosity in the proper position and get it off the skin. Because that, that skin death back there is a real pain. And uh, I recently had to deal with it. And it just, it, it's, it's not, it's preventable. And and so I'd encourage you to get that to the OR with some urgency. And I have a real quick technical question on on these cases where you have that avulsion piece that's given a posterior skin compromise. On your incisions, do you just make uh, like an incision medial and lateral to the Achilles? And then with your pins where you're trying to get your reduction, are you aiming towards that constant fragment? with your first pin and then kind of using that as a lever, what's your technique for, uh, for actually reducing and, and holding those in place? For an avulsion fracture? Correct. Like if, an, if it's an avulsion fracture 
or if it's a, a posterior, like if it's an actual tongue type um, that that has that is displaced as now giving the uh, posterior skin compromise. Gotcha. So two separate techniques. Um, the first technique for the avulsion fracture is, is really your goal is to bring that Achilles tendon insertion back down into place. You've, you've got to say, hey, Achilles, come back down. And so oftentimes you're going to be dealing with a compromised host there. They're diabetic. They're older with poor bone. And that's what allows that eccentric lengthening, that eccentric contraction of the Achilles to win and beat the calcaneus bone. And so you got to be really judicious with your incisions because these people don't take a joke. And so I'll go, you can go, you can choose one medial or lateral. I'll often choose um, a medial approach just to, to the side of the Achilles uh, just to gain purchase or access so that I can pass a K wire uh, through and provisionally hold it. And then I'll use that as a guide wire for a cannulated screw. Now, Raul Banerjee, uh, he has a nice review article in the Yellow Journal or the JAOS uh, that talks about various techniques. You may weave a crackout stitch through the Achilles if you go more centrally and pass it through drill tunnels in the calcaneus and tie a suture over a button on the heel. Um, you, you, can, you can do any number of techniques. Uh, and, and I think the keys are really just return to orthopedic principles, respect the soft tissue, avoid the sural nerve more laterally, and then make sure that you consider doing a strayer procedure. And that strayer procedure is lengthening the gastrocnemius in specific so that the effects of that overpull of the Achilles, which has likely been happening over time, are mitigated and they're not fighting the reduction you've obtained. That's part one, and it's a long way to part one, I apologize. But part two, the posterior facet, if it's attached to the tuberosity, you're doing that Essex Lepresti spike maneuver. And, and so you gain purchase in that posterior fragment, and you need to eliminate varus, and you need to restore height um, or, or reduce that fragment by means of plantar flexion of the foot. And then you want to take the pin that you've entered into that proximal fragment and you want to pull that towards the floor. And you assess your reduction on a lateral radiograph to make sure that you've restored the posterior facet to its proper position. Again, base camp, high mountain valley. That, that relationship must be restored so that bowler's angle comes back to normal, knowing that in those fractures, typically the uh, angle of your son hasn't really changed. So you're relying on bowlers with that uh, tongue type. Uh, and you're reducing it with the Essex Lepresti maneuver. And what uh, what position are you doing these in? Are you doing these in lateral or, you know, supine, prone? What's your choice of uh, I'll, I'll positioning? Typically do it, I'll typically do it in the lateral position. And I, I, I choose the lateral position. I, I secure their torso. And it makes it easy for me to go from the three main views. And so what I'll do is I will set them up in the lateral position so that the beam when oriented vertically will give me the lateral view of the calcaneus. Then imagine how you're always going to the lateral on the tip. You're rolling that C-arm back. And if you set it up at 45 degree angle to the bed, 
you can shoot that beam when in the horizontal position right up the long axis of the calcaneus and that will give you that Harris heel view. So right. those are your two main views. And then you say, well, tell me about the Broden's view. We've got to get that, right? Well, we certainly do. But you then return that beam to vertical, getting that lateral view, and you can grab the knee, externally rotate, confirm your near a mortise view um, of the ankle, and that will give you that view of the posterior facet. As you go from that 10 degrees to 40 degrees of tilt from the head to the foot, you'll see a different portion of that posterior facet. And, and this is a key, uh, Cody, this, this was what we highlighted in that lecture is that when you're reducing two round uh, pieces of bone, there may be a point where that beam shows that you've got a perfect reduction. But when there are two curves, you've got to confirm it in multiple trajectories so that you're not just catching serendipitously that one area where you've reduced it nicely. Right. And then those two curves are intersecting. The curves must intersect throughout the entirety of the curves. And, and that's why the Brodens has 10 degrees, 20 degrees, 30 degrees, 40 degrees. That's the point of that because you're assessing not a straight bone but a curved one. And so, again, long-winded answer, but I, I do this in the lateral position, and I do it because it gives me good access to the fracture, a stable base, and my radiographic or fluoroscopic assessment more properly it is, is easily done. Perfect. I think that was a, a great explanation. And uh, I know you were speaking a little bit earlier about, you know, doing this systematically in the order that things um, – in the order of, you know, importance or, you know, urgency. Now, say, for example, this is a open injury and it has, you know, a loss of bowler's angle. I know we, we touched upon, you know, one of the articles by Githens talking about using a medial sided X fix. Can you kind of talk about that a little bit or what you would do um, in these open calcaneus injuries? Sure thing. So in a, in a calcaneus fracture that has an open injury, oftentimes it is a tension injury on the medial side that does a medial exposure for you that most people are hesitant to do. Why? Well, because you've got some uh, tigers over there. You've got flexor halitus longus, but you've also got the tibial nerve and the posterior tibial artery and the multiple branches thereof. And so most people don't like to go that route, and I can understand why. But that approach is typically already done for you, and there'll be a medial spike there, and you can essentially uh, put in an anti-glide plate uh, directly through the traumatic wound once you've properly irrigated and debrided it. But since it's a tension injury, oftentimes it's not very badly contaminated because they're in shod feet. And so a proper debridement, proper irrigation, usually not contaminated. And then you can place that plate medially if the fracture is not too comminuted, especially. And, and you can create that axilla that the AO folks always talk about. And you, you place that, you suck the plate down to that medial cortex. And, and gosh, you've eliminated varus and you've helped to nicely restore height by restoring that medial cortical bone. Now, sometimes that's not possible because you don't have an open injury or, or you don't want to put hardware in there directly in a permanent fashion. 
And so you'll do a medial external fixation. That medial X fix, I think, is a great idea. And I'm interested to see if it gains traction because of the paradox of soft tissue rest and calcaneus fractures. When you have a lot of loss of height of a calcaneus fracture, the bone is compressed, right? And so that mountain, that high mountain, is crushed down sometimes past the base camp. But it's not just a bony problem, recall. It is also a soft tissue problem. And so that soft tissue is resting indeed while you get rid of the fracture blisters or, or while you let it calm down to where a wrinkle test is showing wrinkles. But it's contracting. And as it's contracting, it's, it's, it's getting tight right before you're going to go back and remove that contraction and stretch it out. You do a great job during your open reduction internal fixation of restoring the height of the calcaneus. And that's what makes me so antsy about that lateral extensile approach is that we're restoring the height of the calcaneus, but we're also tensioning this tenuous skin that has been sitting in this contracted posture for up to three weeks. And so it makes all the sense in the world to me to place this uh, uh, um, external fixator pin in the medial tibia in the calcaneal tuberosity, and then oftentimes I'll put it in the medial cuneiform going across through the cuneiforms. And so you'll have the fracture resting in a not a perfect reduction, but you'll eliminate some of the varus and you'll restore some of the height, and that will indirectly benefit that soft tissue. Don't go away from this discussion saying, oh, I got to do that all the time. By no means. This is me saying, gosh, what's that next level? How are we going to really optimize soft tissue care in these fractures? And so I offer that just to get you understanding the paradox of soft tissue rest in calcaneus fractures. Yep. Uh, that actually ties into, you know, probably one of the more dreaded complications with these types of fractures, just the, the, the wound issues that comes about. But before we get too far into the complications, I was just thinking of some, something else that's kind of high yield. And we, we, we touched on it at the very beginning of the talk with the construction worker being the part, being the storyline that we kind of use for, for the, uh, for the injury. But what patients or what kind of, I guess, what, what factors are, have, have been shown that to just not do well with operative management for calcaneus fractures? Sure. Uh, you know, the, the folks you need to look at are older folks. Um, and and the, the, the study that popularized this was primarily authored by Buckley. Um, and, and he analyzed this in terms of, well, how do these operatively treated folks do versus non-operatively treated? Um, that's the folks do real well compared to the displaced intraarticular calcaneus fractures, but that makes good sense. Workers' comp patients, the ones who oftentimes have an incentive to do poorly financially, uh, whether or not that's a proper uh, attribution of motive, I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll take that uh, as a hit on my argument, but for whatever reason, work comp patients do worse. And so when you remove them from the equation and reanalyze the data, operative folks were doing better, especially Sanders type twos, folks that don't have so much loss of bowlers and folks who um, are younger. And, and so young folks, 
uh, they're doing really well with surgery, but people over 59, well, maybe you need to worry about that. Or if you're going to treat them, maybe you treat them like you do a Sanders sport where you reconstitute the architecture of the calcaneus and then do a subtalar arthrodesis at, at time of intervention one. You don't wait for them to develop arthrosis. You do it right off the bat. And and that that kind of ties in with, you know, understanding the Buckley article that uh, evaluated their response to surgery and then Buckley's uh, Yellow Journal review of that data. Uh, but also go back to what Sanders said. What, what are the key components, regardless of who's going to do well? What what is it on? What what's it? What's your obligation as a surgeon? Well, number one, you got to do anatomic articular reduction. So if you can't anatomically reduce the posterior facet, you probably shouldn't be trying, and you should send it to a colleague who does. Even then. That number one factor, that anatomic reduction, doesn't ensure a good result, likely due to the cartilage damage that occurs at the time of injury. He also highlighted there's a steep learning curve where you've got to do 35 to 50 open reduction internal fixation procedures before your results are predictable. And then finally, he said, hey, type four, do an arthrodesis after the reconstruction of the calcaneus shape. And that's key. Get the height back, eliminate the varus, and then do the subtenor arthrodesis. So it's ORIF and arthrodesis, not just arthrodesis. Those are important keys uh, to understanding it. Regardless of who you choose to operate on and, and, and what data may exist to inform your decision, understand that you, you've got a you've got a big obligation, a, a big burden on your shoulders. It's it's no small thing. Yeah, I think those are all um, excellent uh, points. And I know we're thinking we're we wanting to touch on that at some point, which patients that you do the ORIF and do a subtalar arthrodesis and those are those those type four um when you talk about the Sanders classification. So I, I think that's a great that you just touched on all that. And um, another thing we wanted to touch on is the approaches. You know, we always hear about the lateral extensile approach versus like the sinus tarsi approach. Um, you know, what can you kind of go through these and, and what you'd be using what for? Sure. So the lateral extensile approach is one that you should probably start on because basically you're not just peeking under the hood or sneaking a peek around an angle. You are opening that hood up and you see the entire engine. So you're making an incision just anterior to the Achilles and then at the junction of the glabrous and non-glabrous skin. And some people may say, what's the glabrous skin? Feel on your heel, that, that thickened skin, it is it is encapsulating that calcaneal heel pad fat. That's your glabrous skin. And then when it transitions to more normal smooth skin you'd see elsewhere, that's non-glabrous. Okay. So that's that junction where you're going to have the horizontal limb. And then you curve it up towards the anterior process distally. But you go right down to bone. The most proximal part of the vertical limb is at risk for damaging the cerebral nerve. The most distal part of the horizontal limb is at risk again for damaging the serial nerve as it curves around the lateral aspect of the hind foot. But centrally, at the apex of that incision, whether or not you curve it or do a right angle, 
it's pretty safe to go screaming on down to bone in a full thickness pattern and it's encouraged and you elevate that off the lateral wall of the calcaneus and mind you that's oftentimes blown out so you must be judicious in choosing your interval so that you get that lateral wall freed up so you can push it back down uh, onto its proper orientation and then you do that no touch technique where, where you put a k-wire in the fibula in the neck of the talus, and then oftentimes I'll put mine in the cuboid. I bend them up, and then I don't touch that flap for the rest of the procedure. Okay. That approach, I think, is the workhorse. I think for Sanders 3s, Sanders 4s, where I'm trying to do an open reduction internal fixation, say on a younger person who's absolutely adamant they don't want a fusion, I will do that. But do know that if you do that, then you probably have to reopen that to later go back and do a subtalar arthrodesis um, because if you do a sinus tarsi approach, at least I worry that you're going to have a triangle of dead skin between the two limbs of your lateral extensile approach and the sinus tarsi approach. Mm. So there were the, the initial complaints were in certain series, you've got folks quoting, oh, 25, 33% complication rates with wound dehiscence, with infection, with breakdown. And so everyone's saying, well, one in four, one in three of my patients is gonna have a wound healing problem. There must be a better solution. Now, the folks who are good at the lateral extensile approach will tell you in a fairly dismissive fashion, don't worry, you're not, it, it, we don't have those numbers. But for the folks who aren't as good at it, they, they're looking for an alternative. And that's where you see these percutaneous techniques or the sinus tarsi techniques. And I, especially for a Sanders two, you can do a sinus tarsi approach and get great results. And what you do is you make an incision from the tip of the fibula down to the fourth metatarsal base, which is more dorsal than you think. It's, it's that fourth metatarsal base. And then you incise the extensive digitorum brevis, innervated by the deep perineal nerve, if you want a high yield fact. Yeah. But you split that EDB and you have access to the sinus tarsi. Then you develop a pocket heading inferiorly and posteriorly and again you've got to really catch that interval between the lateral wall which is often blown out and the soft tissue and you must protect the perineal tendons but you develop a pocket just imagine putting your hand in a pocket you you take a cob and just elevate that soft tissue off the tuberosity and, and the lateral wall of the calcaneus so that you can percutaneously slide your plate in if you so choose or at the very least, visualize reduction in the posterior facet and make sure you have great interfragmentary compression between your articular fragments. Mm. And but the, sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. I, I was going to ask when you're fixing these if there's any particular order um, that you try to art- assemble the art- articular surface using whichever approach. Sure. Regardless of the approach, if we say to ourselves it's really paramount that we get an articular reduction, well, we must make room for the reduction to occur. If everything is compressed and and it's in varus and it's shortened, there may not be room to get that articular reduction. And so if you look at San Jorzen's work, um, you know, if if you have master's techniques uh, hanging around in your library, he says, hey, build from anterior on back. So create uh, an anterior and a medial cup for it. 
and so restore that anterior process if there's a fracture extension into the calcaneal cuboid joint. You want to reduce that so that the transverse tarsal joint functions properly with inversion and eversion. And you want to secure that. And then you want to get the tuberosity out of the way. And that's where you see that shant pin often placed. And that can either be placed from uh, posterior or it can be placed from lateral. Know that if you're placing it from lateral, if you want to be perpendicular to the long axis of the calcaneus, you have to drop your hand because you're already in varus, right? And so right. you're dropping that hand because when you're eliminating the varus, you're going to have a more vertical chance pin, and that can be a visual cue that you've got a better reduction. Some people, however, will take that pin and place it posteriorly and aim it up towards the posterior facet and in the medial aspect towards that constant fragment so that they affect reduction and then they provisionally secure reduction by advancing the pin up into the sustentaculum or the constant fragment. I imagine this would be a good time to talk about the constant fragment. Yeah, let's do it. Constant fragment, we alluded to it, is the sustentaculum tali is part of it. It's so named because we thought to ourselves, it is always there. It's constant. It doesn't move. It's suspended by portions of the deltoid ligament. Um, and, and that sling of the FHL below it and the suspension of the deltoid ligament from above held it in place. That was debunked with Liparachi's work uh, and that of his colleagues saying that, well, in these higher energy injuries, you can have displacement of the sustentaculum tali, and it's not a given that you're going to be able to build to its proper orientation in somewhere between 30 or 40 percent of your patients. And so you've got to scrutinize that CT scan preoperatively to make sure that you don't have to do some fine tuning of the sustentaculum or the so-called constant fragment before you build to it. So we've built the anterior process. We've checked to see if the sustentaculum is in its right orientation. We've pulled the lateral wall off. We've got varus eliminated and we've restored height with our stance pin and we've obtained provisional reduction with K wires that are out of the plane of our articular reduction. Then we build from medial to lateral. We, If we have C fragment, we put uh, or sorry, if we have a C-type, we address that fracture line first. Some people will use bioabsorbable darts. I like to aim my K-wires out the sustentaculum and just withdraw them medially and then cut them short enough that they don't cause a problem for poking your glove, but long enough that you can retrieve them out medially. So I, I, I advance it far enough medially so that I can then put the next most lateral fracture fragment down, secure that, directly visualize it. And then if I so desire with a double tipped K wire, I can push that K wire back from medial to lateral and secure that fragment as I compress it with a dental pick. Right. Then I'll go to the A fragments on and so forth until I've built from medial to lateral at that articular fragment. Uh, conglomerate, for lack of a better word, on the tip of my tongue. All right. Well, I mean, I think we went over quite a bit, and you know, like you, you went over a lot of the the 
not only just the high yield, but just kind of delving into the weeds too to help uh, more advanced practitioners as well. So I really appreciate you going through some of this, these details in such, uh, you know, in such depth. Oh, it's my pleasure. And, and I actually had one more quick question. Um, there's a lot about, uh, you know, if you read it, it looks like it always talk about repairing the SPR um, versus doing something with the perennials. Is there anything, do you ever, you know, repair the SPR if you have those fracture dislocations or you just leave it or what was your thoughts on that? Absolutely. Uh, Roald James Toussaint, I think, wrote a great article about it in KBJS. He, he was a, a resident up in Boston when I was a fellow there, and, and he just really spelled it out nicely where he said, hey, you, you got to look for it. And again, this is my, I, I hang my head on about 30%. About 30% of the time, those perineal tendons are dislocated out from behind the fibula. So we know that the brevis is beefy and it's below and it's right adjacent to the fibula. And then directly posterior to it at the level of the ankle joint, you have the perineus longus. Those are primarily restrained by that superior perineal retinaculum. But when that structure fails, those perineal tendons will dislocate. Sometimes they'll spontaneously reduce. And so the CT scan might not show on the axial views dislocated perineal tendons. But you can and you should assess it intraoperatively, whether or not you're using that lateral extensile Ketch has an article on that, or if you're using the sinus tarsi approach, which is heading right at that fibula, the distal tip, either way, you place a freer along the course of the perineal tendons inside the groove, and you try and move it from posterior to anterior over the lateral aspect of the fibula. And if there is no restraint to that freer after you've placed it in the sheath, and you can somehow move that freer to the lateral aspect of the fibula, then you know you must extend your incision and then repair the superior perineal retinaculum. And so I'd encourage you to know those techniques if you're going to be a calcaneus surgeon, regardless of the approach you use, because you've got to reduce those perineal tendons. All right. Well, I think you pretty much went through, I, I believe we went through every complication I wanted to bring up. Even uh, we talked about wound dehiscence, uh, perineal impingement, uh, perineal tendon dislocation, uh, arthritis. Uh, so I, I think this was a great just overall talk on this topic. Uh, Cody, do you have anything to add? No, I think that was an, uh, I think that was an excellent um, talk and overview. And um, about, you know, calcaneus fractures, how to manage it. And I think you did a really good job going through the lateral extensile and how to um, reduce and, you know, approach these fractures. So I, I think it was an excellent talk, and I hope everybody listening to this um, got some, some value out of this. So we really appreciate you um, coming on and talking about calcaneus fractures, Dr. Dabb. So I, I tell you, it, it's my pleasure. I appreciate you inviting me. And I, I'd be remiss if I didn't say how inspired I am by you guys. The, the fact that you're hosting this and you're educating others in the middle of your residency is far above and beyond 
anything I uh, would have done as a resident. And so that commitment to education, we talked about it with uh, Paul Gladden's reference, the program, your program director down at Tulane, where yes, sir. It, it, you really have learned it if you're teaching others and you're doing it. You guys are modeling it. You know, and I, I so respect it. I admire it. I encourage you. And I thank you for letting me share it. Thank you all for listening to that episode on Calcaneus Fractures with Dr. Dowd. We hope you guys really enjoyed it. He really explained a lot of things very well and broke things very uh, broke things down in a in an understandable fashion. Um, if this is your first time listening to this podcast, hit that subscribe button. And if you have made it this far to the end of the podcast, tag us in a social media post on your story. Take a screenshot of the podcast, tag us in the story, and we will repost you guys for being dedicated to learning and making it this far. Always for show notes, go to nailedithortho.com and you can click where it says click for show notes and you'll get an entire PDF. Until next time.